Good evening, uh, good morning, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, my name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our global edition of Radio Evolve. And I'm very happy to welcome here Monica Sharma. Monica, you are in the line? Yes. Hello. Thank you so much, Tom, for inviting me to this important radio show, which is about evolving. Thank you. Thank you so much, Monica, for coming. I'm really happy uh, to have you here in the broadcast. If I may say some words about you, Monica Sharma worked many years for the United Nations as a director of leadership and, and capacity development. She designed and facilitated programs for whole system transformation and leadership development throughout the world with measurable results. Monica also established and implemented programs in 40 countries to prevent and treat HIV AIDS and pioneered strategy for whole systems transformation to reduce maternal mortality in South Asia. Monica Sharma developed a conscious full spectrum model, which simultaneously in time solves problems, shifts systems, creates new patterns sourced from individual inner capacity and transformational leadership. And Monica, you also wrote a book about your work, a book uh, that is about radical transformational leadership. And I would like to dive in, in the deep end and ask you directly, what you what is it that you call radical transformational leadership? Tom, there are so many books on leadership. And for me, it was very important that we are able to distinguish what I mean to say from what others think is leadership. The first thing is that the word radical, most people think is like radical politics. And I am using the word radical as root, as the basis of very much the way we use the word radical in mathematics or in science. So it's the root of. And to me, human beings have great capacity at our very root. That root is really our space of oneness. And to me, radical transformational leadership is really being able to source those very powerful roots that we have. So that's what I mean by radical. Then I was looking at the word transformational and the word change. And I am using the word transformation very much like you do, Tom, which is transformation in today's world really connects three things. It connects our deep consciousness, the work that you do and many others do. It connects our pattern, our ability to see things whether we are systems thinkers or not, and we are able to then do something that transforms the situation. It's not a superficial fix. And that's how I distinguish transformation at our source, our roots, and then leadership. And the third word, leadership, I have um, described in a very specific way. Most leadership programs focus on better management. I think that's important 
But leadership is about creating new futures. It requires us to engage with strategy. So the book is about strategic change. And it's about people who are concerned about making change that is transformational. And it's sourced in our own inner capacity. Thank you for asking question, Tom. Monica, one thing that impressed me with your book, uh, because you hold in this book a lot of complexity of radical system change, uh, the way how you uh, really have a pragmatic attitude, uh, but as you explained also in your own words, a very radical attitude. But there's one through line through your book, which is a radical base on values. You uh, you talk about three universal values, dignity, equity, and compassion. And when you go through the different chapters of your books and describe your work and describe also the people that you're working with, these three values show up again and again and again, in particular when you try to be very uh, specific how cultural transformation, how our paradigm shifts can be made, this value seems to be a guideline for you. Why is it so important for you to base this very complex work that you're doing on something that you call universal values? So, Tom, you know, uh, it's important that we look at the universal values like a compliance place that... Um, you know, something that uh, we have to obey or have to listen to. What I realize, as you know, we as human beings, we are also emotional beings. You know, our limbic system hijacks us. We are human and, and we need to self-regulate. So that part of it I get and you get and everyone gets. And then we have, um, we call it higher consciousness. And we believe human beings just have that consciousness. And I notice that a lot of us want to focus on difference. And it's very important that we celebrate diversity and difference in a way that we are able to respect and honor each other, not in a way that we are divisive. So when I look around and I realize these three values are actually based on very evidence. When I graduated from medical school, um, that was the late 60s, early 70s, um, in the last century, I was taught that the success factors for people relate to their IQ, how smart they are. And smart is being able to do something good. And then Daniel Goleman, his absolutely breaking research, tracked graduates from Harvard to see who succeeded. And basically, success is about being able to contribute, being vital and, and being able to make it and all the parameters that we talk about where we are unleashing our potential. And what found that self-awareness is a massive predictor, a major predictor 
of how we are able to lead change. And self-awareness is, you know, another way of looking at consciousness. In that self-awareness, talk about something every psychologist talks about when they work with clients, and that is a sense of self-worth, self-esteem. Some people call it, you know, a healthy sense of self. And what that translates to in language for designing strategy as different from working with individuals, what's different is when we work strategy, we are working for humanity. When I'm a psychologist working with one person, I'm looking at healing, I'm looking at creating a space. So that space for an individual is self-worth and self-esteem. What we know worldwide, that space is in human beings simply because we are human. And that dignity matters. And yes, it is true in society, Tom, seen, and I've seen ways in which we really um, diminish people. We show lack of respect. We call it honor, but it's actually very dishonorable. And I've written about it in the book. But, you know, honor killing and, and things like that. But dignity is a space human beings just know worldwide. How great is that? That there is something we share just because of our consciousness. Then I came to the next factor, our sense of fairness. And I always knew that, Tom. You know, I know that being a parent and a grandparent, I know that having worked with children, that, you know, imagine your five brothers and sisters and there is one delicious cake and the mother is cutting a bigger slice for some and a small slice for the others. You think that everyone's going to like sit down and say, it's okay, mom. No, we have an innate sense of fairness. And then I was so um, inspired when there was a report from Oxfam you must know Oxfam. They are located in the UK. Yes. They did a study, um, and, and they did a study in the US. And they found that 92% of people actually believe in fairness. How great that, Tom, that basically in a world that has so much abundance, where the structures and systems create so much inequity, that we have an access point deep in our being that's about fairness. Equity that we all talk about is a structural issue. You and I know that we can design as human beings structures and systems that allow us to, to share in a world of abundance. We don't have scarcity. We have abundance as long as we are not greedy. We are fine. As long as it's not opulence, we are fine. As long as we focus on prosperity and not growth only, we are fine. So then I found that the sense of fairness just exists worldwide. They are right. It's not just Americans. It's worldwide. They talk of fairness. And yes, culture has often distorted the meanings of fairness. And yes, people who have a misguided understanding of leadership assumed that greed and uh, all of that is what human beings want, that the human beings are driven by self-interest alone, and we know it's not true. 
We are wired to connect. That's what we know from neuroscience. Then compassion. Worldwide, every religion, every spiritual group talks about love. And to me, compassion is a little different from the way we talk about love. What we now know in neuroscience that many of our brain cells actually exist, like similar cells. Neurons exist in our gut. They exist in our, our heart. And that's why we call it heart fit. And by that, I don't mean the romantic heart, not that that's not what we should have. I mean the word compassion. Mm-hmm. So compassion comes from a Sanskrit word. Sanskrit is a language in in South Asia, in in um, India particularly, just like Latin is a parent language of many, you know, source language for European languages. So in Sanskrit, there's a word called karuna, and karuna is really what compassion is. Compassion is a talk, your heart and my heart, broke open, or just wide open, that true compassion for the world, where I am not self-centered and self-absorbed. And guess what the news is? When I can touch that space, I am called to act. I don't have to become an activist. Um, uh, I believe proactivism is a fine space. I'm not saying that that's not a, in some ways, I are activists. That means we just act and we try and promote something that we believe in. But compassion is human capability where when we touch our universal heart of love, a call to act. We cannot be apathetic. We cannot walk past other people's pain like it doesn't matter because the opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. It is, I am not called. I do not allow my, my ego to, to dissolve in the presence of my greatness. So these three things are there. Hmm. And why do I need to select them from? They are so re- related to the two words you used. In the midst of complexity, making our response complicated does not work. How do I make it simple, accessible, understandable, such that people participate? Hmm. Monica, if I make if you may come in here, uh, uh, you just gave uh, quite a beautiful testimonial for your big spiritual heart and uh, the place that you come from. And I'm deeply convinced also, uh, having met you before, that this uh, deep spiritual heart is in the end what is thriving work, what is what, what gave you to the strength, the power uh, to do what you did in the United Nations with all the programs uh, from HIV to uh, uh, child traffic. Uh, what I find uh, very intriguing, uh, hearing about your work, knowing you, uh, reading your book, is that you bring this deep spiritual human compassion and heart together with a very broad system view and a very fierce orientation on creating results. 
So you, you hold this, uh, what you were just describing, and it seems to be uh, the center where you come from. But you don't hold this just as a, a person who has a big heart. You hold this together with a very concrete, lifelong experience, how really big, big tremendous human problems uh, that we are faced globally can be uh, approached with this attitude and how this standing that you are describing here can be a red line that allows us to be very flexible, very pragmatic, very systematic, and very hands-on in solving problems. Uh, just for the benefit of our listeners, I, I just would like if you just give some of uh, some uh, examples of the work that you were doing and how this approach formed in your life, how this thinking formed in your life and what people uh, helped you to come to this uh, conclusions, how leadership, transformational leadership can come from such a radical, heartfelt place. Thank you, Tom. You know, that radical, heartfelt place is you and I and everyone has, you know, whether we are we are spirit inclined or we do not um, have a particular religious practice, it's just innate in us. It's the kindness that, that emerges, you know, transcends different races or prejudice or whatever, and and we are there. But I like your conversation, you know, the inner space is one that unfolds. So what we do is to create a platform for unfolding. You cannot teach people this. It's not like a religion, right? People need to discover their own greatness. But the piece that you talk of on systems is very interesting because today connecting to that systemic change is what is going to make the difference in the lives of people. And the interesting thing, Tom, is, and I'll give you a few examples, is that people worldwide get it. And they get it because of something that we are not aware of. So in, in the world of systems thinking, you know, people like Jay Forrester, groups in MIT, they've done so much important work. Mm-hmm. And, and disciplines now evolve that look at systems analysis, But very early on, people like you and I, and I dare say you and I, because I do know your work, and and we we know that there is something different um, in human beings that understand systems. They really do. And maybe even some of the other sentient beings do, but we don't know enough. But human beings have a better mind. And I discovered that very long ago that people know what the norms are, the systems are. We've just told them that, you know, what thinking is a very, very complex thing, and maybe you need a couple of PhDs before you can think that way. And, and very interestingly, Donella Meadows, you know, said in her work, um, she was a systems thinker from MIT, and she said, oh, it's not complete the way we think. Because people have a pattern mind. And do we know how to simulate that? So in the work that I do, 
worldwide. I take simple films that people can relate to, such as the one like Story of Stars. It's something that human beings can relate to worldwide and short. It's not like a huge documentary. Then they can understand what a system is, which is a system has components. It's connected. It's interdependent. And it has functions. And that human beings have these systems, unlike the body. So very early on as a physician, I understand that my body is a set of systems. And as an engineer understands that there, there are systems, so we think better. The body has feedback loops. So as a physician, we understand systems. We don't necessarily apply it. So for me, it was very easy to slide in looking at how do people think and how do they create their new realities? And guess what, Tom? That's what's made the real difference. The ability to connect to one's deeper passion and to see a norm. I've written many stories about people that are absolutely factually correct in the book, but I'll illustrate a couple just to show that it requires a different sort of way of thinking. So, uh, you know, here we are working to address HIV and AIDS in the Arab region. And, you know, the, the, the whole epidemic was so related to sexuality and bias and stigma. So one of our biggest issues was how do we embrace each other through these universal values of compassion, of, of dignity for us and them, and not have an us and them, and be able to really look at fairness, like access to treatment. So all this we translated into real life. And, and basically, um, a couple of women actually said in the Arab world that, you know, it's not just HIV that's our issue. Our issue also is female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. And basically, we began with a large number of religious leaders who were with us. And what's beautiful when we unfold this is that deep down, any mom says, I am the mercy of Allah that he identifies with universal values. And most priests will say, I am the compassion of Christ. And and that's why why they genuinely joined. And then, of course, there are human elements of ego and power and all the rest of it. But people can rest in that space. And I recall that moment, Tom, when when we we had the the, the scientific information that that this is not the same as male circumcision. Uh, we had the religious um, information through scholars that neither Prophet Muhammad nor Jesus promoted these things in their their script their teachings because uh, it, this is a practice around the Nile Valley and and um, both both uh, Christians and uh, uh, Muslims follow this. And then. Somebody stood up and talked about what happened. And basically, we asked the question, if I am this greatness of Jesus or the prophet, can I not see what's missing in these norms that put out, in the pattern, I think? And one stood up and said, I'll have a fatwa against this. And right now, there are sermons, and so far from Jordan also, up and said this. 
There are religious leaders who teach the young clergy that this is not, not the same as male circumcision. This is not a practice that we can go through. And that's a huge system. And religion is a huge system of a kind. So the ability for a human being, when he or she or they notice incongruence between their values and a systems question or normative question, they step up to make a decision that changes the paradigm. That's how we changed budgets in, in, um, in different countries that were, were not being allocated for HIV and AIDS. That's how we challenge norms that are disempowering for women whose husbands had died of AIDS because the property is taken away culturally. So for me, it's such a powerful way to activate pattern thinking. Unfortunately, Tom, too much, too many experts and too much emphasis is based on knowledge only. And not that knowledge is not important. I think it's vital. But the inability to really look at the pattern of every citizen and transform what's not working, that I think is important. There are templates, simple templates, that even housewives have used when we worked at community level that transform this and connect our deepest consciousness with us mind and then call us to do something. Does that make sense, Tom? <laughs> Tom, I don't hear you. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Uh, that makes very, very much sense. Uh, there's one. Uh, there's there's one, one term that you're using that I think brings very much together uh, all these different aspects that you're describing from systems to these deeper values, also to the human heart. Um, you use the word of the unifying architect as uh, something that uh, describes your work. And I find the unifying architect, uh, the way you describe it in the book, holds together that there's a unifying aspect that bring people together in the roles that they're playing, in the ideologies that they're holding, and in the heart that they're having. Can you tell us a little bit about this concept of unifying architect in the way you approach leadership and why you think this is something that really helps to transform societies, to transform culture? I love this question, Tom. Um, to me, you used a word, ideology. And the word ideology, in fact, means that I understand a complex phenomena. I have a framework to look at it. And many ideologies actually began with some values, you know. So did most religions begin with, you know, uplifting humankind. What happens with an ideology is that we get so attached to the ideology that our identity becomes ideology. And we fight for that ideology. So in this work, we have a couple of places where we 
speak of ideology differently. And in fact, even in Donella Meadows' 10 Places to Leverage Since Change, she uses as perhaps the most powerful space. Our worldview determines how we approach any problem, whether that's a complex problem or it's a problem at home or it's a problem in society. For example, at home, if a child is not performing in school, the ideology or the way in which the worldview that parents hold will determine how the child continues education. In an ideological perspective, mm-hmm. it's not that ideologies are incorrect or correct. There tends to be a polarization of thought, and very often there are those people who will promote an ideology irrespective of the changing context of today, irrespective of values. So ideologies get entrenched in ego-based solutions, in power politics, and all that kind of stuff. And then we start identifying ourselves with that. So in this work, the first thing is we look at systems change as a dynamic space. And we look at it from the three values and we look at it and see whether there is wholeness and integrity in what we are doing, how we are strategizing, and what we are doing for systems change. Mm-hmm. For example, um, if I have a point of view on how a strategy should unfold to reduce poverty or to enhance prosperity, there are a lot of people who are stuck in the ideologies of capitalism or or any other ism for that matter. And then they tend to look at the strategies just from that ideology. In this work, we will look at it from values. Mm-hmm. And we will have, we will cultivate an ability to look at systems issues from these universal values that every human being, whether I'm the leader of the of a party or I'm the CEO of a business or I'm a citizen of a place or I even don't have formal education, I can work with that space. Because values have no degree attached to it, you know. Compassion, dignity, and um, and and uh, f- equity or fairness is not based on how rich I am or how much money I have or I don't, or whether I follow one faith or I don't, or whether I have two PhDs or I have no formal education. It's a space of our universal heart. Monica, if, if I may come in here and just... Um, I, I completely understand where you're coming from, but I think the the, the interesting question, and I guess uh, some of the listeners will maybe have the same question. Like I've, I completely agree with you, but how do you get people to go to this place beyond the ideology, beyond yeah. the, the party orientation, beyond their PhD knowledge? Or you, you say there's something people can unite, but how do you, how do you allow people to go to this place? So so I'll connect the unifying architect to this. My sense is the reason this has worked worldwide, whether I've worked in academia or I've worked with the Council of Ministers or I've worked with grassroots or I've worked with people who are 
hymns and have transformed and have changed. Mm-hmm. There's some yearning in us, uh, Tom. We know how to create platforms, which you do too, of touching this inner space and allow our ego to quieten. And we use, in the first place itself, we use about 42 very light but interesting uh, tools and templates. So the unifying architect is a person who generates his or her or their worldview from these inner capacities and can address systems issues through simple questions we ask. Mm-hmm. We ask us very simple questions. How, what is the problem? So they'll write the problem. How does it show up right now? What will happen when you intervene? And they just write at what will change or what will transform. What will you do? And then we ask a question. For your work to be sustainable, that means enduring. For your work to reach everybody as equity, what do you need to shift in the system? What do you need to shift by way of norm? So, for example, the the example I took a little while ago is that if all human beings are to be treated with like the mercy of Allah and the compassion of Christ, I need to be able to treat the women and the men the same way. So I can see that dissonance. There's something in our pattern mind that picks up gaps. And then our wholeness wants to narrow that gap, especially because we are then loosening our attachments to our points of view. So the unifying architect uses templates that, number one, and there are three templates that we have put in the book, and we have some more, and I thought that it was like, you know, enough. The first template that we call a conscious full spectrum template Mm -hmm. is the way in which we design programs that every citizen, irrespective of education, can do. So we'll create a room where people care about the same thing, what they care about, not what I care about. And then if I cannot, because it's a visual, even if I can't read and write, I can partner, for example, Tom, if I could not read and write, I can partner with you who can read and write. I can fill up that, that space. And, you know, the feedback from people who didn't have education is this was the first time ever in their lives that, that people from outside have asked and valued their opinions for change. That, to me, is genuine participation, not token representatives, because we have a lot of token participation happening, you know. So then we also need to put a couple of things in place. We need the four things that we must start with, that that in order to have the, the systemic thinking become reality. So the first is, of course, what you do and you highlight and I do, is do you have and do I have or do the others have a space to discover and to rediscover this and be able to design differently. The next is, do we have the information that we need? And in today's day, there is so much propaganda. So we we really spend time on, on being able to provide very little, but very correct information that's factual about what's happening. Um, the third is that we need to be able to create environment for change, a different kind of change. And we call it policy. We call it media engagement the legal dimensions of anything. 
and 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 people are aware of what that is when we start working and lastly we will put in place ways to support people who take risk to change what's not working and that tom has been actually one of the most important things we do because many people use information many people have tools and techniques that are you know related to policy media to leadership but very few really have authentic courageous face support others who take risk to have equitable and sustainable change and we call them principled game changers they are the ones who can change the rules of the game change mm-hmm. norms and so that's it. and lastly we are very clear that the current methods of planning that experts use worldwide are linear and create fragmentation and that it is vital that the planning process does three things one that it's based on values not as an afterthought or in beginning that every step the way in the planning and implementation process we have ways to integrate it and the book talks of of those not all of them, there are more uh second thing is planning needs to not being siloed so currently we have definitive objectives in all our logic models nothing with the logic model but a model that's not interdependent will create silos and will create you know fragmentation in the workplace and in our plans and the third thing is that um, plan implementation is not the prerogative of experts anymore it is a way where anybody who truly cares can participate so at demystifying a, a planning process or education that's been elitist is vital and so i enjoy this work because it's, it's really exciting you know when people all fold and they do things they love to do and they they plan for it they design and it's most unexpected what happens mm-hmm. monica with all this experience and also because we are uh, getting slowly to the end of our uh, time here when someone comes to you uh, a young leader who is doing social work who is doing political work who is doing system work who uh, sees himself as a uh, leader for transformation leader for transformation and ask you uh, Mo- monica uh, what would be your advice how can i develop to do this change work this uh being this change agent that i am and that i want to be uh, to a deeper more effective and also more just powerful and uh authentic way what would be your advice for someone coming to you what should that man that woman do so, um, uh thank you for that question and um I would add that business leaders and I'd add to that yes. leaders and media and so it's yes. some of the unconventional faces artists uh, I just did a session with um, a jazz program in new school and and you know so so they all think that way and human beings think that way so I don't have advice the first thing I turn around and say I don't have a second share experience 
because I think that that people need to think it, work it through themselves, and then I begin in a few questions, mm-hmm. and, I, and they want to continue, and I'd say I will share myself with you, but what do you really burn for? What does your heart ache to do? What do you deeply care about? Not what your mind says, but what do you want to see manifest? So for me, usually people will come up with something that they deeply care about. And like whether it's related to empowerment or it's related to prosperity or something that is big. Because people do like to think big. So to be able to draw that space. The next thing I will ask is, when did you have experience in your life that broke open your heart? And to me, that experience, like, you know, there was someone who said, I, my, I was serving in hospice when a person passed. I guessed it was not about me. It's about the whole world. And people have had those experiences early on. And then I will ask systemic questions. What do you want to shift? And so because we don't think, because if we knew what we wanted to shift as norms mm-hmm. and and about it and everyone they think about get it they get what they need to do so basically the things that what do I really care about when did I break open my universal heart of love or compassion and and what do I need to shift is how I begin the conversation and then I would say you know service it depends on, on who you are but you need to engage in action because without action the theory the this becomes intellectual and it happened to me before people loving the book and talking talking about all these great things but that's not where the where the change occurs so it doesn't matter whether you're at home or it's anywhere else so i would then ask them to to look at this as uh, what you do at home what would you like to take on and then i'd suggest a couple of other things number one to learn these tools in real life and join some of the learning sessions. I would read the book and similar books. I would say, listen to, you know, people who say these things and, and create a small group where you can talk about it because talking by yourself is hard. So, for example, people have study circles, book clubs, they have action pods where I work, which means like three people get found on homelessness. Um, that's their purpose. That's what they want to do. But then they they go through the book or learning or practice through their lens of what they want to produce. There are people in higher education who want to transform the way in which outreach practice, you know, projects are crafted. So currently, projects are not crafted this way. They are crafted only to solve a problem. And then, yes, there is some implicit value base, maybe, and almost no systems thinking. But how do I craft projects like that? Yeah. So it's usually joyful. Yeah, Tom. Monica, um, I really uh, appreciated this conversation with you because uh, there's... um, it's it's not often that you can talk to someone who are, comes with a heart like this and with an experience like this and also who can share success 
the, the success of your work. And that's the reason why I asked uh, this last question, because I think uh, to have someone like you to really show that it is possible to become a change leader and that it is not, um, it is not rocket science. It is, uh, it needs your heart. And I, I really appreciate that basically you started the first question, uh, that you would ask someone like this, where is really your heart opening? Where is your heart breaking? And then give advice how to access, uh, the experience that is out there. And definitely what your book is, uh, is a, is a big example like that. I think things like this allow us to learn together how we can change. And I think the main message I take from this conversation is just simply that change is possible and uh, that it's possible to really reach people, that uh, people do go beyond their uh, bureaucratic function. People do go beyond their uh, ideology, their fundamentalist beliefs or whatever when you are there for them. And then you have to really also know how one can be part of a change that really sees the system as it is. Uh, idealism and heart is important, but you also have to understand the systems and how it works. And I think that's the message that you're delivering. And I'm just uh, very grateful for you sharing this with us. Thank you, Tom. I love what you said. You know, this is not about idealism. It's about realism. It's what it is. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you, Tom, for inviting me. So thank you very much. Uh, again, uh, the book title is Radical Transformational Leadership. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that you share there. And I appreciate it very much the conversation. And thank you for everyone for listening. Good evening here from Frankfurt in Germany.